Climate Mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on Earth and came up with a hypothesis we wanted to test. If you believe in climate change, the only way we'll get past these massive environmental problems is if for profit companies get involved. In other words, we've spent hundreds of years getting into this mess. We'll need to spend billions, maybe trillions, getting out of it. Therefore, companies need to make money in order for someone to spend it. Then we asked, can we speak with a dozen or so companies in different verticals of climate tech who are making it part of their mission to be climate conscious and making big bucks while doing it? Well, we did just that. Thus, Climate Mayhem was born. So follow Jacob Kubica and I along as we listen to some incredible stories to test this hypothesis. Oh, and are you an entrepreneur about to get into this space? You will definitely learn something from these extremely impressive founders and operators of just how possible it is to take on a seemingly impossible task. Mayhem on, Jacob. Mayhem on, Ty. Danan Margeson is the chief product officer of Carbon Direct, a consultancy and fund that focuses on solutions for end-to-end carbon management. But what the hell does that mean? Well, they help businesses track and reduce their carbon emissions. And they've done this for some companies you may have heard of, Microsoft, BlackRock, and Shopify. Real quick, back to Danon. Before Carbon Direct, he was the director of product at Booking.com, an SVP at a local Northwest startup called Toon, and in past lives was an attorney and a professional rower. Super interesting guy. And a cool cat. Now, this episode is particularly valuable for anyone who's been scratching their head on what exactly are carbon credits, are they BS, and what real carbon capture projects are happening. Totally true, Jacob. I also think this is a super amazing episode for companies, startups, young, old, doesn't matter, that are thinking about their environmental impact and what they can do about it. We talk a lot about that, and you might find out that Carbon Direct is the answer for you. So stay tuned, check it out, see what you can learn yourself. I think it'll be valuable for you. And mayhem on, Jacob. Mayhem on, man. Danon, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We're honored to have you. You're the first decarbonization, carbon management, sequestration company we're having on the show. I thought it'd be really important to get this, this angle. Uh, I thought we'd start off with Something completely unrelated. What do you love of, about Bob Dylan? How did you find this stat? I, Jacob <laughs> found some stat that I've listened to Bob Dylan 10 times more than any other artist, which I think is actually true. That might even be a low number, but where did wow. that come from? Yeah, I, I found your Spotify. No, I, I just, uh, I was on Twitter, on your Twitter. I went like maybe like two years back or something. <laughs> you had a random, is a comment on someone else's tweet, something about Bob Dylan. And, and I just was like, okay, good. I got something. Well, that's amazing. Good research. Um, yeah, I mean, Bob Dylan is a fascinating character, kind of a, a real person, but also an actor, hard to figure out. 
I love that about him. I love that he's both a poet and a, a genuine artist, cares about his craft, very counterculture, which I'm probably not as much as I like to think I am, but I grew up in a hippie household and and like to uh, like to feel like I have some Bob Dylan in me. Nice. And I just love his music. Uh, he's, for whatever reason, it's resonated with me. I listened to it as a kid growing up quite a lot. Uh, the Freewheeling Bob Dylan album is by far my most listened to album honestly maybe by 50 or 100x uh, it's that album wow. that i that i pick up anytime i'm kind of in a in a funk or in a weird mood and i just want to want to relax so glass of whiskey free will and bob dylan that's the solution to everything in life nice bob dylan's been making music he made a lot of music right was that would you say you know younger bob dylan middle i think that I was his second or third album second okay. if not mistaken so yeah before he went electric Okay. I like it all. I like it all, but that one, for whatever reason, just really sings to me. And did your parents listen to Bob Dylan? They did. If I recall correctly, they um they got married to Forever Young, Bob Dylan's song. But yeah, I think uh, I got exposed Very to it as cool. a kid and just fell in love with it more in university. Nice. Very cool. You mentioned you were up in a heavy household. What was that like? <laughs> well, my mom was really into recycling before it was cool. I think okay. Ty was, before we started, Ty was saying he's among that crowd. She actually developed the King County Solid Waste Program. So Whoa, King wow. County was one of the first places to do curbside recycling, and she was part of the team that brought that to life. So environment was Super part cool. of my life pretty early on. Yeah, I never heard the full story of my first name, but uh, the tidbits that I've heard sound like there were probably some drugs involved and, and other good times <laughs> <laughs> coming up with the name of Dana. And so, yeah, uh, but, you know, they were just very... Um, into environment, into into health, you know, that household with no sugar. So I was always going to friends to to find to eat uh, whatever the sugar cereal was I was into at the time. So yeah, that no kind of sugar. Gosh, that sounds intense. Kind of like it though. You mentioned Bob Dylan pushes the envelope. Do you feel like you try to push the envelope? You try to embody that in your career? I think I'm very opposed to going with the grain in all respects. And uh, that can be a blessing and a curse for sure. But I started my career, I was a rower to the extent you can be a professional rower. That, that's what I did. And then when I got injured, I um, went to law school without any real training, without studying a whole lot for the LSAT, just because it seemed like something really different and interesting. And then hated being a lawyer, went into tech, doing marketing stuff, didn't like that, wanted to get out of the country, moved, moved to Amsterdam and the product at booking.com, which is a big travel company before getting into climate. So I'm sure we'll get into some of that, but all those career things were about just shaking it up and, and trying to switch and do things differently. And it's not a criticism at all, but when I think about a lot of my friends from high school, university, law school, you see what they're doing. It's fairly predictable, I think. And I hope what I've done is kind of a weird path and i like that it's weird and i think i've learned and grown a lot by making it weird so that's just in the career sense and but yeah in general i like to think that way ty i think you nice. and dana share that in common yeah absolutely <laughs> for sure I'm right there with you right man. love the adventure love yeah. the adventure ty we don't usually go there but how do you identify with that i took a very unique path as well i mean mm. honestly didn't even think i would end up where i ended up today but yeah i um i went from trying to be just a philosopher or poet <laughs> a long time ago and anti-establishment not have anything to do with big business 
to being kind of obsessed with entrepreneurs and startups and getting into the tech tech startup world here in Seattle, you know, over a period of 20 years. So, but I've changed careers multiple times and changed directions and always tried to go a little bit, a little bit to the left of, you know, center if you can. So, yeah. Yeah. You've had a pretty, pretty cool career. I feel like I'm too green yet to the state. I've had an interesting career. Danon, so you mentioned rowing, you used to be a pro rower. What translates from rowing? And that could be culturally principles, operating model habits to, to, to business, since that's what you've been in for, for a while now. Yeah. Pro rower is a strong word. Um, barely covered the cost of my food, but, uh, but yeah, to the extent you can be, I guess I was, did that for a little bit. Yeah. So many lessons from rowing and, and people who work with me get annoyed by all the analogs that I do. I think for me, the biggest takeaway from rowing was it's one of the few things where pure hard work gets results. And the people who are very mm -hmm. successful and end up on national teams and the Olympics for rowing are not always. And in fact, I would say rarely are the most talented. It's the people who just stay at it the longest. And I think there's a lot of lessons there in life and especially in climate. Uh, the teamwork aspect is also super interesting where, um, you know, you've got there's different classes of boats, but the main one that you do in, in high school and university is an eight person shell with a coxswain. And, you know, you have eight people, all different body types, all different styles, trying to get them to be completely uniform and in sync and get their blades to drop at the same time, come out at the same time. It's actually really freaking hard. So yeah. the amount of intensity that you bring to each stroke, the amount of thought that you give to all of your teammates' habits and behaviors and trying to convince them to come along with you, I think a lot of that attention to detail and also just the teamwork element and the motivation element mm. relates pretty closely to business and a lot harder to do in, a, in life, but I like thinking about those things. Seems like you have to be intensely in the present or making yourself be in the present if it's if it's a competition with another team, right? And getting in sync with everyone, that seems pretty pretty key, right? It's super meditative in a way, but also mm -hmm. very, very intense. And I think because it is so intense in what you are doing in your own boat, it's actually really hard. Like when you watch mm -hmm. rowing, it looks easy. It's very, very hard to do that well. Um, because of that, even when you're racing, you don't think about your competition really at all. You can't afford to do that. You have to be focused on getting your boat to move as fast as possible. That's a really important lesson for business, mm. at least it has been for me. Being intensely focused on the goal, the objective, and not so much focusing Setting on your goal yeah. and just making your boat go as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then the competition yeah. will do what the competition does, but you're not always going to win nice. every race. It's, uh, but if you can optimize yourself, you're going to end up in a good spot. That reminds me of Alpinus, that one documentary came out, Mark I saw Andre, that. Leclerc, yeah. right? And when you're watching, Ty, did you get a chance to see that film? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Those moments when they're filming him and he's just in the moment of doing the multi-faceted climbing, you're like, man, this guy has to be so present to be able to mm -hmm. just reach that objective of getting to the top of it, right? And he's not looking, and that's why he doesn't want to look at the camera or doesn't want to have the camera there because then to, to him, it's distracting from him actually doing the thing, right? There's this, this is a total tangent, but since you brought it up, Probably the single, cool, single cl coolest clip of video that I've seen. Alex Honnold climbing Half Dome at Yosemite. It's before that movie came out about him. Mm -hmm. So he was famous in the climbing community, but not globally famous the way he is now. And it's just a YouTube video of him climbing Half Dome. And he ends up on this ledge. And, you know, 
increase in allowing as well. He ends up on the sledge and he starts to panic and he's halfway up the hmm. wall or, you know, 800 feet wow. up or whatever. He starts to panic. And so you're watching this happen. And, um, you know, it's clearly a moment for him. And you can imagine the intensity of standing there. There's no way out. Mm-hmm. And at some moment, he just, he clicks and he gets that focus back, that intensity. And he just looks up and starts going. And it like wow. almost shakes you to the core to see him wow. go through that. Super cool. Yeah. Anyway, I got to see that. I mean, we'll yeah. link in the show notes if I, if I'm able to find it. Dana, what what got you interested in climate sustainability? Because you, you didn't work in climate before booking.com and when you worked at Tune, when did you start thinking about all these issues? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know that it, there was any moment, you know, and it's unfair because I actually ask people this in interviews sometimes. What was your climate awakening? Everybody kind of points to something. And I'm mm-hmm. sure if I was being interviewed, I could come up with a with one answer. But it's really just an um, amalgamation of things. I, like I said, my mom was involved in environment, so I was always pretty aware. At that point, environment was very different. You know, you had acid rain was a little bit before my time, but it was that kind of stuff and mm. recycling, water pollution, air pollution. But, you know, climate change wasn't on anybody's radar when I was growing up, mm. um, at least as a young kid. I was born in 84. You know, then as I got older, probably ignored it a bit got focused on my own things and like litter, you know, that type of environmentalist. I think the real like sea change for me and thinking about climate change as a very serious issue was only five or six years ago, maybe in Seattle when we had smoke over the city. It's the first time, you know, I spent my whole childhood here and never saw smoke. I think I saw it once uh, when I was driving the yeah. east side of the mountains, you know, over where Mrs. Fires start and uh, seeing it kind of over Seattle, over Green Lake, where I rode in high school. I remember that quite vividly. And then, you know, that started to happen every year. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This year, we didn't have it as much, but it's still, we saw it in September, October. So that sort of shocked me. And then um, I moved to Amsterdam and I guess it was 2018, maybe early 2019. People there care a lot about climate. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's about 60% of the Netherlands is under sea level. It's all basically levees around the entire country, keeping the sea away. And so... Mm -hmm two feet, three feet of sea level rise is a very material impact on their lives. And Amsterdam, yeah. you know, wouldn't exist if they hadn't engineered their their ways out of it. So they're, they're pretty attuned to it, talked about it a lot. And it's just like mm. started to think about it more and more. There's some really motivated and inspiring people at booking.com who I worked with on my team who are trying to implement better design choices into our software to make people travel shorter distances and and go to hotels that had made smarter choices in terms of how they built the hotel and and also the products that were used there so Mm. it just was kind of on my mind more and more but i wouldn't say i was an activist or super passionate about it until i found carbon direct interesting yeah i think i identify with that too it's it's an amalgamation of things that add up and it's almost like the pebble in your shoe that's always there and you notice it when you're young but you just get caught up in just life and growing up and your career. And then later on, I, you know, those pebbles get bigger, there's more pebbles and you just can't stop looking at that foot then, right? You're like, it's just really uncomfortable walking, noticing it. What role did climate play in accepting your role? It sounded like it, it affected you and, you know, growing up, but this, this role that you have at Carbon Direct. Yeah, it, it did play a big role. Um, you know, I had always assumed falsely very wrongly that to work in climate or environmental space in general, you had to kind of be at an NGO or 
it could be a for-profit company, but not a company that was going to be big and important and meaningful. So I'd never taken it too seriously. And in fact, when I was uh, in law school, I thought about being an environmental lawyer. There's no good money in it. And I had lots of debt. And so I just sort of like turned the other way. When I started talking to John at Carbon Direct, I recognized just the magnitude of the global problem and also the economic risk that we are facing everywhere. And, you know, huge shifts in human population centers and large-scale weather events that create tens of billions, you know, potentially trillions of dollars in damage every year. And as I started to dig into some of the economics of it, I realized this is something the planet just has to tackle. There's no option mm-hmm. anymore. And when you have to do something, it creates economic opportunity. And I found that pretty interesting. Like, this is a point in our planet's history where you can work on environmental issues, you can work on climate, and you can make a lot of money. And those things are not mutually exclusive at all. And that mm. that drew me in. And so I started to, to dig in closer, uh, more into Carbon Direct, but also into the carbon credits industry overall. Um, it's super, super mm. early days. Um, you know, there's not a lot of companies competing right now, but there will be. It's pretty, pretty clear to see where it's going. That excited me. I had a great, great job at Booking.com. Did, was in no hurry to leave, but to end up at a spot where I really felt like I had economic upside and was working on climate, it just seemed like I couldn't pass it up. Yeah, that's great. You're kind of already talking to our thesis of this whole season. You know, we really wanted to talk to companies that are doing this for profit for a number of reasons, but really to ask that one of them was to ask that question you kind of asked, like, is this just government work or NGO work or nonprofit work, or is there economic opportunity here? So really cool. Excellent. Well, let's let's get into that now. Before we jump into Carbon Direct and Carbon Management, maybe we'll go over some terminology for the audience, give them some, some foundation. So let's just start with, there's a carbon removal credits versus carbon offsets versus renewable energy credits, which is RECs. Are these all the same? How are these different? Maybe we'll just start with carbon credits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, carbon credits, carbon offsets, I think are fairly interchangeable terms. Okay. Um, offsets has a more negative connotation, but similar concept. It's a it's a broad term to, and, and Rex are in this as well. These credits are essentially allowing you to pay to not emit or pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and then claim a benefit or a credit for doing that. So if my entire annual emissions associated with myself as an individual, one ton of CO2, I could either you know stop moving, moving, breathing, and eating and not emit any CO2, or I could purchase a carbon removal credit, we can talk about what that means in a second, to essentially make it as if I did not move, eat, or emit. But if I did choose to not move, or emit at all or eat anything, I could also potentially sell that to somebody and say like, hey, I didn't move or eat for the last year. To the extent that I'm still alive, uh, you can claim a claim a benefit on my behalf, essentially. And then, you know, you can then emit more. So that's, I don't know why I went down the using myself as the example, but that's kind of the <laughs> idea. It's either, um, you know, one person stops emitting what they would otherwise emit and then sells that as a credit. Or you can, you know, there's technologies, and but also things like planting trees where you can sequester CO2 and uh, and sell that as a renewable benefit. Okay. How is this different than a renewable energy credit? Same idea with a rec of renewable energy credit of just uh, 
you're moving to renewable energy and off of fossil fuels. So by making that transition, you're emitting less CO2, and then you can sell that that delta to somebody. Okay. So to simplify it, a, a rack is just like a carbon credit, but it's uh, the source of that energy was done through renewable energy, like solar. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. That's my understanding. To be honest, I know nothing about RECs. Um, okay. But yeah. And then negative emissions. We, we we heard this a lot on Climate Journey podcasts with John Goldberg, a couple of different places. What exactly are negative emissions the same thing as a carbon credit? Is it more of like, a, like an umbrella term for that? It depends on how you use that term, but a negative, like let's say use Microsoft as an example, a really leading organization. They are going to go to net zero as a first step, which means that for all of their activities, all their emissions, they're either going to reduce. So moving data centers to renewable energy, carbon-free energy as an example, Mm -hmm. to the extent that they can't reduce, like their employee travel on jets, they're going to purchase carbon removals credits. And they're actually going to purchase more than they need to, to get to the point where they're operating in a negative state to make up for all of their historical emissions, Uh, as if they never emitted anything. Pretty astounding goal. Most companies aren't that aggressive. So negative emissions could be used in that sense of I'm purchasing carbon removal to actually get me to be on the whole operating in a negative state, pulling more CO2 out of the atmosphere than I'm emitting myself. It could also be used in a general sense of negative emissions are these carbon removal credits. And we didn't talk about that, but carbon removal is really not different than a carbon offset. It's part of the broader bucket, but it's a specific kind of offset that is actually pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. If you think about offsets broadly, there's the avoided emissions, which I talked about. So there's also Mm. avoided deforestation, right? Like I'm not avoiding emissions, but I'm avoiding cutting down trees that otherwise would hold carbon. But there's also things that are where you're being active and pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. So I'm planting a bunch of trees in an area that has not had a forest for the last X number of years, call it last 50 years. I'm planting those trees. They would not have otherwise existed. And I'm going to sell that as carbon removal credits. That's really helpful because those trees are going to suck up a lot of carbon from the atmosphere and store it for a reasonably long period of time. There's also engineered carbon removal, which is fascinating in and of itself, but you know, building plants with giant fans to suck in air and then using chemical wow. compounds to capture the CO2 and then store it underground, often hmm. in old oil wells or taking rocks and having them CO2 attached to those rocks and then dumping them off in the desert somewhere or whatever. So these are really interesting not new technologies. The technology has been around for a long time, but people are now taking these technologies and scaling them and creating all kinds of different ways to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. Fascinating. Okay. What is carbon management? Carbon management is also a general term. We may have even made it up, but it's essentially um, the process of understanding what your CO2 emissions are and taking steps to mitigate, reduce, remove CO2 that you are emitting. So it starts with just the basic understanding of your operations today. How much measuring. Yeah. Yeah. It often starts with that. Now it doesn't have to start with that. And I think that's a misconception that you have to understand your footprint. One of my PMs, I love that she says this, but she always says, I don't need to know how much water I'm using to know that I should use less water. Hmm. I think, you know, same thing with 
with CO2, often people get hung up on the measurement side. Well, how could I, how could I offset or how could I reduce if I have no idea what I'm emitting today? That's not really fair, but it's generally the first step that organizations go through is the measurement side. And then you start to go into the, the two core pathways of reducing, and that's by transitioning to less carbon intensive energy sources, reducing your activities in certain ways, and then removing, purchasing high quality carbon credits that actually have meaningful impact on the atmosphere. Okay. So Excellent. I'm going to jump in there because I think, I love that you said you think that you guys may have invented this term. I mean, I know you weren't necessarily there right at the beginning, but is this in essence what Carbon Direct does? Like this idea of carbon management, what you just kind of described? Is there, or is this how it started? Maybe that's a better way to ask the question. Yeah, that's what Carbon Direct does. We help companies manage their CO2 emissions and find credible defensible and economically viable pathways to reduce and remove. That's the core of what we do. Tongue in cheek on us inventing it. I, I have no idea who invented it. I don't think we did, right, right. but, but certainly it's not a, it's not an established term. We are as an industry kind of developing it together, but it's going to be an incredibly important, important part of every company's path forward. And yeah, how I frame in my head is there's, there's wealth management. People have their, put their money with the, wealth management firm and then they maximize it optimize it and you do the same thing with your carbon like how do you really re- yeah, and you're just trying to reduce it that's that's the most simple way to to understand it and then i guess last thing on definitions so there's there's two categories for carbon capture there's natural and then engineering based explain each of those really quickly or maybe an example in each one yeah i touched on it really quick quickly there but you know natural is really using natural things that exist in the environment, uh, like trees, plants, soil, and optimizing them to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. So the example I used of planting trees is an obvious one. There's also different ways to to till soil, ensure that there's right nutrient blends in soils so that they're optimized, it's optimized for capturing carbon. That type of work, peat moss, huge source mm. of uh, carbon sequestration. Oh, so really? different mm. things like that. Anything that's biological, I guess, in nature. And then and then engineered is human invented. So it could be the rocks that I was talking about. You know, rocks obviously are, are natural, but humans invented uh, the chemicals and processes to turn those uh, into rocks that, that capture yeah, yeah, CO2. Yeah. Direct air capture is another example. And there's certain hybrid solutions, like you can take wood and burn it in a very specific way to basically condense it and capture carbon. Mm-hmm. And then you and bury it underground. Biochar is what it's called. So yeah, there's lots of different ways to. Very interesting. Okay. So I know you weren't there at the beginning, but what do you know of the founding story? I think I love the fact that we kind of mentioned wealth management as well as kind of these scientific methods because the two founders are basically that, right? It was a wealth manager and and a scientist that kind of got together to start this company, correct? Well, you know, John was definitely the, the founder. He's a hedge fund manager commodities trading. And then Julio Friedman and Jen Wilcox were also both there very early, longtime scientists in the space. Jen Wilcox joined the the Biden administration and does a lot of work for the Department of Energy around carbon capture and sequestration. Julio is on staff um, at Carbon Direct now. He was a professor at Columbia prior to that. Jen was a professor at Penn. Julio's been around this business as long as anybody can be around it. Um, it's been working in in carbon capture, I think, for most of his career. So very, wow. very seasoned people who who started the firm. 
Um, and it really kind of had one goal, which was to scale carbon management. I mean, it's it's as simple as that, but you know, there's obviously a lot of detail packed into that. On the supply side, emerging technologies, both in the nature-based and engineered, need capital, need to scale, and really, really quickly. We need to get to 10 gigatons of CO2 removal for most IPCC pathways. We're in the arguably millions of tons right now. We're talking about 10 billion wow. tons every single year. Huge, huge scale problem. So deploying capital to those businesses on the supply side and also giving them the support to, to grow their businesses and find buyers, that's really, really important. And then on the demand side, helping to grease the wheels and create more demand. And then when that demand exists for carbon removal, making sure that the purchases are done in a credible, defensible way, the credits are high quality, all of that work on the demand side. So Carbon Direct started focused on that. We've since evolved a little bit more and, and we do more than just carbon credit work. We uh, we also help remove with reduction pathways. We do a little bit of policy work for clients at times. So we're doing more and more to just help our, help our clients with whatever they need. But uh, it started kind of focused on the supply and demand side of carbon removal. Yeah, super interesting. So again, forgive my simplification here, but it seems like on one side, you know, that demand side, talking to companies, helping them manage or hit the goals that they were kind of thinking about for themselves by finding them good, high quality credits and the, and the place to go. And then the other side, you guys actually raised a fund, right? And actually invest in growth companies that are in this space, whether they be natural or engineering, right? Yeah, that's right. And Fund is going well, um, found some really great companies to invest in and grow, as you can imagine, for regulatory reasons and also just to, because we think it's the right thing to do. Um, we operate very separately from that Got fund. It. So we, yeah. you know, we represent our clients and whatever help they need, um, we're not pushing companies that we've invested in or anything like that. But both of those are really, really important. Um, and the fund is doing great work. So, yeah. Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us. Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon. Thank you.